Well, good. We figured it out. I mean, I haven't done this in weeks. How am I supposed to remember what buttons to push here? I know. But I think we've got it. I think people are out there. Hello, people. Hi, everybody. How are y'all doing today? It was so good to see so many of you yesterday at St. Andrew. It was good to be back there. Um, I tell you, both Scott and I, this was this was a hard seven-hour jet lag to get over. We're usually much better, but... I came back with a bit of a cold, and unfortunately now Scott has it. I know where I... I was healthy until I climbed on the SAS flight from Copenhagen to London, and there was a hospital ward in the row behind there me. really And those was. people were back there hawk, hacking and coughing and coughing and hacking, and I'm sitting there thinking, I'm doomed. <laughs> I'm doomed. What can I do? I'm doomed. I know. So I anyway, know. yeah, there we go. So The good thing is you have your voice. You sound good. I have a voice. I have lozenges here that I may have That's to, right. uh, you know, pop in once in a while so I don't have any coughing fits. Yes. But anyway, just had an extra cup of coffee. Extra Give cup you a little coffee. caffeine. Get going. Get the energy yes. level up. Ice yes. water. We got. It's all laid it's out. It's all here. laid out. I got my whole. It's <laughs> like a. It's like a cockpit here, you know, with everything ready to go. Yes. 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 So we yes. hope that y'all are doing really well. Um, I I know that people aren't doing pretty much anything outside um hope you're staying cool in your own home and and i don't know maybe taking advantage of a little downtime enjoying a texas summer yeah right yeah 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 it's hard to believe that when i was a kid we lived down in this part of the world without air conditioning until i, I was I in the, we did not have air conditioning in our house until we had one room air conditioner when i was in the ninth grade wow yep Wow. Yeah. Schools weren't air conditioned. So you'd go to school in September, and I can remember sweating so much that the blue lines on the pages would run, and the page would get all wrinkled because you'd be They're sweating. Sweat. Oh. I must, I bet we must, we kids must have smelled really good. It must have been lovely. <laughs> <laughs> man, oh man, oh man. Well, I remember years ago, Robbie, who's now 33, but when he was in um, fifth grade, we were the room parents. Yeah. And um, Robbie had a friend who was um, much more mature than the rest of the boys. Oh, my oh, goodness. I remember that, yes. He smelled so bad we thought we were going to croak. Everybody It's one did. of those that you'd quietly try to slip him some deodorant. You know, yeah. here, here, son, try, try, try he this. He's a sweet, nice kid, but oh, my goodness, his parents didn't realize he was already was like a 15-year-old. Really? You know, I used to sing in choir, and I was in a choir once where... Somebody snuck mints into one of the music boxes oh, of gosh. a choir member. Choir member to oh, just that's brutal. <laughs> yeah, well, but necessary. Yes, yes. So anyway, okay. Enough of us bantering here about absolutely nothing of importance. It's summer. It's summer. <laughs> anyway, Scott, I think it's time for you to pray. We'll okay. get going. I'll try to keep this jazzy over there okay we yeah. appreciate jazzy okay. all righty patty jazzy <laughs> okay let's pray gracious lord we are grateful to be back here we've been gone several weeks we've missed this i've missed this and we appreciate that we can come together even in this virtual way to be together to study your word um and to enjoy the gospel of mark to engage the gospel of mark to embrace the gospel of mark and just just help us every time we gather to become a little bit better readers of scripture and to hear mark well and to hear the good news well all this we pray in the great and glorious name of jesus christ 
Amen. 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 Okay. I'm going to move over. Get the little stool out of the way here for okay. you. Okay. All righty. I'm going to adjust the camera a little bit. Maybe pop the lozenge in just to get off to a good start here. Any changes with the um, the air conditioning or anything? Just let me okay. know. All right. So we are in the tenth chapter of Mark, and Mark really like Luke, like Matthew. Luke is the most direct about this, but there's there are two things that the journey going on to Jerusalem, um, and in addition, Jesus is is continuing to reveal more of who he is and and what awaits him and the opposition to Jesus. And all of this is coming together because though we're in chapter 10, verse 32, chapter 11 is Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Wow. Yep. So so it's all it's all coming right now. So what we have at beginning at 1032 is the third time now that Jesus has predicted his own death. Okay, and I just want to reiterate because it's so, so hard for us to get this. So hard for us to get this. That, remember Peter has already confessed Jesus to be Messiah, right? Right. So, and we're real comfortable with that. And we know that he died on a cross. But if, for these disciples of Jesus, there is not any space in their head for a crucified Messiah, for a Messiah who has suffered and died. There's just not. So when Jesus goes on about his death that is lying just ahead, I personally just think they just don't know what to do with that. I think they probably hear the words and and they're perplexed. I can imagine them sitting around talking about it later and saying, what are, we what are we doing here? And we'll see evidence of that here in just a minute, okay? So, verse 32. They, this is Jesus and his disciples, were on their way up to Jerusalem. Let me explain that, okay? Whether you are coming from the north, south, east, or west, you would be going up to Jerusalem. It is because Jerusalem is where the temple was. And the temple is, the temple is, you know, the place where God would dwell as far as the Jews were concerned. And so everything was up to Jerusalem or down from Jerusalem, not points on a compass. Also, right, how high the city actually is. Yes, the and elevation. the city's high too because you would typically build temples on high places. But this, this upward motion is, is, is not points in a compass. So, because they're heading south, not north. Let me have, I, wait, I have a map. Look at this. Whoa. Back to maps today. <laughs> okay, Scott. All right. Let's go. There we go. This is the southward journey, okay, from Galilee down toward Jerusalem. They're going to follow the Jordan River. They're going to go to Jericho, and then they will go up to Bethany, which is on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives, and to Jerusalem. That's the basic structure. So it's basically a southward, a southward move, a southward um, journey. Okay. 
So they're on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. So notice two things. He, there's a larger party than the 12 disciples following Jesus at this point, okay? But he takes the 12 aside for this teaching. This is, this is a teaching that he thinks the crowds can handle. It's for the 12. He took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. And here's what he said, verse 33. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's Jesus, of course. Daniel 7 is a reference for that title that he took to himself. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Those would be the Pharisees and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later he will rise. So it may be a little weird. Jesus talks about it in the third person, but it's not that weird. But it's the third time he's done this, right? So you're tempted to say, well, gosh, surely by this time the disciples can grasp what is happening and all the implications of it. But they don't, and, you know, I've done this teaching for a while, and I, I guess I always feel like we have to be quite modest about thinking if we were actually there, knowing only what they know, that we would somehow be so much more insightful and understanding than Peter and the rest are. I'm, I just don't know. I just doubt that's really true. I'm pretty sure it's not true for me. Well, just to show you how much they're not getting what, what's happening. Verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Now, John, James and John are part of the inner three. Right, so remember you have Jesus, you have the 12, this new Israel, just as there were 12 tribes, there are 12 disciples, um, the capital T, 12, and within the 12, there's an inner, innermost circle of three, Peter, and then the two sons of Zebedee, James and John. They're the ones, for example, who go up the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and behold that whole incredible visit with Moses and Elijah and Jesus and so forth. So you would think that if any of the twelve were really going to be tuned into what's happening, it would be James and John, the sons of Zebedee. But they come to him and they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so funny. I, I mean, I don't think there's any weird cultural thing going on here. I've never read of any, never. It's just, it's just incredibly bold on their part. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. <laughs> and I can just imagine Jesus kind of, kind of shaking his head and saying, what do you want me to do for you? And they replied, well, let one of us, these are two brothers, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left hand, that's what they're talking about, in your glory. So these would be the esteemed positions when Jesus is glorified. 
That's what they're talking about. We want to be there right at your side when you are glorified. Okay, so let's talk about Jesus' glory. Because I think glory is a word that we use a lot. We hear a lot in songs, and we probably hear it in church, and we read it in the Psalms and other places. We don't really grasp what it is. It is a social term. It is defined socially. There are certain words that way, like justice. Okay, justice is a is a social term. There is no such thing as justice when you're talking about just an isolated individual, like on an island. Justice is a community idea. It's a social idea. Um, I remember one time I I I, I kind of surprised the staff. We were having a little meeting on sermons, and I said, you know, social justice is 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 a redundancy. All justice is social. It's what the word is. And they stopped and thought about it for a minute, and they said, yeah. Glory is the same thing. It's a social word. Glory is enabling everyone to see the truth about who you are or what you have done. And so I'm going to ask you a question to contemplate here. Over the course of Jesus' birth, life, death, when, when is he glorified? When is it most evident to everyone what Jesus is really all about? Think about that for a second. This is not a quiz. I would guess the resurrection. Well, no, you might, you might, but it's really the cross. It's on the cross that you see the depth of God's love. You see the depth of Jesus's love, the depth of His commitment. Remember in class yesterday, we were my my, my Sunday morning class. We were talking about Philippians two. And Paul writes, who's obedient unto death, even death on a cross? Yes. That's the essence of it right there. Um, I remember reading Richard Hayes once, and he says, look, there, there are significant passages, whole books in the New Testament that don't ever have the word love in them. And he said, the reason is because for the New Testament writers, if you want to know what love is, you look to the cross. That tells you what love is right there. That's the depth of God's love. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That giving is referring to the cross, not to his incarnation, not to his resurrection. It's to the cross. Paul writes, you were, to the Christians, you were bought at a price. And what is that price? Where do you see that price? Where's that price exacted? It's exacted on the cross. The cross is the glory of Christ. So when... James and John say they want to be his right hand and his left hand and it's glorious as if they're asking to be like the two thieves who are next to Jesus on those crosses. But they don't get that, right? Because they don't really get, they, they don't, they don't get what's coming. And Jesus knows that they don't. And he says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? 
What's he referring to there? It's about the suffering and death that lies ahead. That's what it's about. That's what it's always been about. Is it, is it, is it something just arbitrary? Well, somebody's got to pay the price and it's going to be this guy named Jesus. No, it's not arbitrary. It is because Jesus will be a faithful Jew, loving God and loving neighbor every day and in every way, and he runs smack into the dark powers of this world, or as we put in our baptismal questions, the spiritual forces of wickedness. And he's going to pay with his life, and he's going to pay in suffering. But it's not arbitrary. But it is the cup he's drinking. It is the baptism that he's going to be baptized with. Can you drink the cup I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And he knows that they don't understand. And they go, oh, we can, we can. So I picture Jesus taking a deep sigh and looking at them and saying, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right hand or left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. So let's talk about the first piece there. You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. I think wise interpreters of this, wise readers, people who have made spent their lives studying these Gospels, they rightly caution us against making this just too simply, they're going to be martyred like Jesus was martyred of that's a good word to use it's it's really it's really something deeper and he it he talks about it in the gospels particularly in the gospel of john that this redemption of humanity that is happening through christ is a redemption that is happening on a path of suffering And that path is a path that Jesus will walk. It's a path that the disciples will walk. It's a path that countless Christians walk. Um, it, is, it, is, it is the greatest. I mean, suffering is not how Caesars and great armies win their wars, but suffering is how God redeems humanity. Suffering is how God redeems humanity. And I get frustrated sometimes when I look across the spirit, the Christian landscape in America and I look at a lot of the resources that are available to church leaders and preachers and teachers and so forth that are out there. And so many of them are focused only on a word like victory. You know, without any... with our victory in Christ, you know, without any sense that this path encompasses suffering. And why does it encompass suffering? Because it is so at odds with the values and ways of the world. 
that's very evident in some countries, right? Um, I think it's becoming a little bit more evident in ours, and maybe much more evident in the coming in the coming decades, even here in the USA. But 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 that's the sense of this, is that is that John and James and the disciples, they are going to be thrust into this redemption, this redemptive work of God through suffering. Though they don't get it at all yet. That is what's coming. And that's why in John's gospel, Jesus is so... Um, there's a lot of reassurance in John's gospel on that long discourse the evening before the uh, crucifixion, mm -hmm. a lot of reassurance in it to the disciples about here's what lies ahead. But, 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 but I am with you. I will be with you. The Spirit will be with you. Your comforter, your advocate, the rest of it. You, you're not being abandoned here. So with regard to the second half of this in verse 40, but to set up my right or left is not for me to grant. Well, I guess that's God's right then to grant and who those have been prepared for I don't know we don't know we're not told kind of pointless to guess about it so okay so any thoughts or questions about that Patty no everybody's pretty quiet okay well that's right you know me I can keep talking. Give me a lozenge or two. I'm good to go. You know, before, when you asked the question, and I can't even remember how you worded it, where I said the resurrection, can you re do you remember exactly what you said? I hope not, no. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, no. The, the reason I said the resurrection was because even his disciples, when Jesus died, they weren't there. They had all run. They truly thought they had, you know, bet on the wrong horse. They did not believe Jesus was going to be raised from the dead like he was. It was all a big shock to even them. And so that is to me why I felt like that was to them the proof that... That's the right word. The, proof the resurrection is the proof, but the glory of Christ is the cross. Because the glory, sh it is like glory is a word that talks about, show me the deepest truth about who you are. And it's the cross because it is, it, that is the depth of God's love, that God would allow his own son to be crucified for our sake, that Jesus would be obedient to death, even death on the cross, Paul writes. This horrible, horrible, humiliating, terrifying, terrible death, the worst death that the Romans could 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 give to anybody. It was a if you were going to be executed by the Romans, it was a mercy if they cut off your head. It was a mercy if they cut off your head. Once you were once you were doomed anyway. Crucifixion. So so that's the idea. It is this so and, and of course, how how does the cross do that? Well, see the on the cross, Jesus is lifted up for all to see. Oh, I'm losing my voice here. Jesus is lifted up for all to see. And so when you come across language in the Gospels about Jesus being lifted up, yes. 
that is that's that demonstrates the love of God. It is the glory of Christ. I think that's the, really the best best way to think about it. Scott Lynn Lawton just asked, would you say that that was Jesus's mission? Would you say that was Jesus's mission? Jesus's mission was You call it his vocation sometimes. Was it yes, his mission? Yes, I, I would use vocation and mission in similar terms. I, I think the two words that that most properly express that are that Jesus was an apocalyptic prophet. In that he was apocalyptic, he was announcing that the, the, the kingdom of God was arriving in and through him. And the Jews had lots of words to express that. The end of days, the last days, the resurrection, all of these things. And he was a prophet in that he was bringing to the people the true word of God and pronouncing condemnation on those who had been unfaithful. So, so if I were to say what was his vocation, that he would be the one faithful Jew Faithful to the covenant with Moses, so that the covenant could be kept and the kingdom of God could arrive. He was faithful to that covenant. He demonstrated God's faithfulness to that covenant. So I would build, you know, if I were to write a sentence or two about Jesus' vocation, it would not be really on his teaching about how to live together, it would be about the keeping of this covenant with God, thus reconciling humanity with God and ushering in the kingdom of God. And that had to be done. How did that have to be done? See, it had to be done by him being faithful to that mission. As Paul writes in Philippians 2, all the way to death, even death on a cross. If he had bailed out, if he had turned away, if he had escaped and run off and so forth, then it, could not, it would not have happened. He had to be faithful every day to God, to his vocation to the keeping of this. And his faithfulness is demonstrated how? In what? In the resurrection. Because the resurrection is the first sure sign of the coming of the kingdom of God three days after Jesus was crucified on the Sunday. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Lynn. <laughs> always. As always, we appreciate your questions. Okay. Anybody Anything else? else? Please. Yeah. Woohoo! You know, Scott always loves that, and he is slurping on a on a. I'm doing I'm doing a lozenge right now. You can probably tell. You're going. What the heck is going on here? Kind of oh. looks like you have a little bit of pink lipstick on now. Must be sucking on a cherry lozenge. Might be. <laughs> okay, so now Jesus and the disciples are going to go to Jericho. So Jericho, you see the first arrow coming in from the 
right side of your screen, pointing to Jericho there. Yes. Um, that is um, an ancient city, one of the oldest cities in the world. Maybe there's been human habitation there for 8,000 years. It's at it's way down below sea level. And it's there that visitors, travelers, would typically begin the climb up to Jerusalem. Over the Mount of Olives, up to Jerusalem. Because Jericho might be, let's say, 1,200 feet below sea level. And Jerusalem is like 2,400 feet above sea level. So it's a pretty ambitious climb over a fairly short distance. But it is the way that people would come. So, then, verse 46. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with the no, large... No, no, you skipped some. Did I? You? Did you? Oh, yeah, I did. 40, Wait, yeah, I skipped everyone. Yes, you're only up to And I'm spitting out my lozenge. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Holy cow. Yes, I skipped all over the... I got so wrapped up, I skipped the indignation of the disciples. Okay, so let's go back to John and James. So John and James go to Jesus, say, we want to be first. We want to sit at your right hand, your left hand. If you're the other ten disciples, what's your reaction to that? Who do you think you are? Yeah. <laughs> Who do you think you are? So, verse 41, that's the place I need to be. Yes. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. You bet they did. And Jesus called them together, and he said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. That's a true statement across all cultures, all times. Not so with you, Jesus says. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served. This is Jesus talking about Jesus. He says, for even I, the creator of the cosmos, right? I did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Right? Yes. The cross is Jesus' glory. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. And the ransom idea is not complicated, really. Um, one person gives something to save or redeem a bunch of other people. It's, it's been greatly overworked in the history of Christian theology as people try to struggle, well, who's the ransom being paid to? And I, and I would just, I would set all that aside. The idea of something what a ransom is, he gave his life for the saving of humankind. First the Jews, right? Then the Gentiles. This is this project that Abraham began, God began with Abraham almost 2,000 years before Jesus when he said, Abraham, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through you. Genesis 12, 3. 
Well, now it's coming to pass because one from the family of Abraham, that's Jesus, is going to be the one through whom God is redeeming all of humankind. All the families on earth will be blessed because with the reconciliation with God is now possible because of the faithfulness of this one man from Nazareth named Jesus. It's just so important to, to, to when you're reading through the verses and the paragraphs to keep in the back of your mind this larger story that all of this is part of. Otherwise, it's, it, can, it can be very hard to see through the trees. But we have to. We have to see that this is God's project to, to fix what went wrong in the Garden of Eden when the humans rebelled against God and that beautiful story of, of creation and then rebellion and <coughs> That, that project is finally coming to, fru coming to fruition. And you see, you and I are part of that project now, right? Because Jesus is going to tell his disciples, and hence you and me, to be his witnesses to the end of the earth, to make disciples of all the nations and the rest of it. But all of that had to await this the solution to the problem of the covenant unfaithfulness of the Jews. And the solution to that problem is named Jesus. Because he would be faithful. Any thoughts or questions about that? No, sir. What do you think, Patty? Am I, am I up to verse 46? <laughs> I believe you are now. Good. Then they came to Jericho. Remember everything I just said about Jericho. So then they came to Jericho. Now as Jesus and the disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, making their way up to Jerusalem, a blind man, Bartimaeus. And notice how Mark helps us, which, mean, he puts, which means son of Timaeus. That's all the B-A-R is. The B-A-R means son of Timaeus. So Barabbas is son of Abbas. Jesus would be Yeshua bar Yosef. Okay? This man named Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. He's blind, you see. That's all he can do. Totally dependent upon the the, the the goodwill of people to give him enough to allow him to survive. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Powerful sentence, correct sentence. Jesus, son of David, Jesus, Messiah, Jesus, anointed one, all that's packed in there. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Well, he's 
just this dusty, invisible, blind beggar. This is the famous by now Jesus. So what happens in verse 48? Same thing would happen today. This is the parable of Lazarus. So many people rebuked him and told Bartimaeus to be quiet. Sit down. Shut up. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now you can picture him raising quite a ruckus and he's doing his best to be loud and be heard. He, he's blind. This might be his only chance to escape this life of blindness. Doesn't tell us how long he's been blind, but maybe since birth. So, verse 49, Jesus stopped. And he said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet, and he came to Jesus. And Jesus asked him, well, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> you know, you could figure Jesus could assume it, but it's a deep question. What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. I want to see. Simple, straightforward, I want to see. I'll always remember learning from Charles Stokes that when it comes to prayer, just tell God simply and directly what it is that you want. What is your heart's desire? And if you pray, and you grow in your life of faith, your heart's desire will become more and more aligned with God's desire for you. And the man simply says, of course, he says, Rabbi, I want to see. I, I saw the other day um, a video, it was a compilation of people who were getting cochlear implants. And they were getting turned on for the first time. So in the first time in their life, they could hear. I love those videos. This was a video of adults. I love the ones of children. So one of the most amazing ones are the babies. And, and the way babies will look at their mother when they hear mother's voice for the very first time. That doesn't get you. Nothing's going to get you. So to Bartimaeus says, Rabbi, I want to see. And Jesus, there, there's no flash. There's no... Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. So this... <coughs> what does he mean when he says to Bartimaeus, your faith? <coughs> faith? Wow. One second. Faith means to trust. It's a, it's a heart word. Bartimaeus trusts that Jesus can heal him. That Jesus has, has the power to do that. I don't know what else he knows about Jesus. I don't know. You know, his head is filled with all kind of doctrinal kind of stuff. You know, like we tend to concentrate on now. How could it be? He trusts Jesus, though. And so Jesus says, your faith has healed you. And of course, for a person like Bartimaeus, that healing is on multiple levels. 
Now that he can see, is he going to be a blind beggar? Not anymore. He, he can live a life that he could only have imagined before. And so immediately, Bartimaeus received his sight. And then he did what? Ah, this is great. He followed Jesus along the road. Of course he did. He wasn't just going to go back and sit down in the dust. He can see. So of course he's going to be part of the crowd that's following Jesus as they're making their way to Jerusalem. Of course he is. It's, a, it, it's just a simple, see it's a very simple little story, isn't it? But notice what's, what comes next. So, so for Mark, this simple little story is the perfect lead-in to Palm Sunday. Bartimaeus knows who Jesus is. Jesus' power, again, over, over nature, over nature, over, and, and for these people, the, the, the spirits that cause all kinds of problems, Jesus' power all, all, over all of that is demonstrated. And now we're going to move right into Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Okay? Yes. So, boy, we tend to know, think we know the Palm Sunday story pretty well, don't we? Every year we do it. Every year we read, well, we read it in one of four Gospels. <laughs> um, interesting, only John's Gospel has palm waving in it. And the Palm Sunday story, the way to understand it is to grasp that all of the pieces of it, they're all messianic symbols. The colt, the cloaks, the branches, the shouting, Jesus rides in through the eastern gate. They're all messianic symbols. There is no more, well, let's be quiet about this. Don't tell anybody about this. Nope. Now it's for everybody to see. Jesus is going to ride in and claim to be Messiah, the royal, the royal one, the anointed one. He's going to ride in and be welcomed into the gate, through the gates, like kings are. That's how kings were met. When, when kings arrived at your city, you would meet them outside your city walls, and you would escort them through the city wall, through the city gate into your city and, I don't know, give them the key to the city or whatever you were going to do. So that's all, that's what's going to be happening here. So there's, there, when, once you get to this Sunday, there is no more, no more, <laughs> what? I'm running out of words. No more dilly-dallying around. I don't even know what that means. It, it's all happening. It's all happening. So, chapter 11, verse 1. So this is Mark's telling of Palm Sunday. The four accounts are similar, but they're not the same. But this is Mark's telling of, of that day. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. So I'm going to go back to the map. Um, I think Bethany's a little bit too far 
south on this map. It needs to be more, it needs to be up closer to the arrow. They're going to come, the, the Mount of Olives is a ridge mountain on the eastern side. I did a slide. Let's see if it's the next one up. Okay, there we go. Was that it? How about this one? Okay. So I was kind of playing around trying to use my computer drawing skills. They're not the best. But that big oblong shape there, that's supposed to be like the Mount of Olives. And Bethany's on the eastern slope. And because you go up the Mount of Olives, then down through the Kidron Valley and in, into the city through the eastern gate, because this uh, this is north, south, east, west. This is that's how this is oriented. Okay, you can see the symbol at the bottom. And what does the Beth stand for again? House. House. So it's house house of any kind of. Well, I don't know. I was just wondering because we had all these Beth Page, Bethany, Bethlehem. Yes. That I think Bethlehem is house of bread. I don't know about Bethany. Okay. Okay, so let's just go back to here. All right. So when they get to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, this is on the eastern slope, and Jesus knows people who live there in Bethany. That's where Martha, Mary, and Lazarus live in Bethany. Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead, sent them ahead, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, well, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. He's just borrowing it. <laughs> so they went, and they found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, well, What are you doing untying that colt? And the two of them answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Now this cloak spreading comes from the book of Kings, when a man named Jehu is proclaimed to be the new king of Israel, and his friends lay these cloaks for him to walk on and so forth. So there's all these symbols of kingship is what these messianic symbols are. And they're all packed into this, to demonstrate that, um, yes, yes, unequivocally, Jesus is claiming to be Messiah, which means unequivocally he is claiming to be the king of the Jews, which means he is unequivocally claiming to be God, the one through whom God will throw out the pagan oppressors and clean up the temple as far as the people are concerned. All of that stuff is packed up together. So they're all shouting, jumping up for joy because they've been under the Roman thumb for, let's see, it's 30, they've been under the Roman thumb for close to 100 years at this point. Pompey came into uh, the land in about 63 BC. So <clears throat> they're, they're doing their part. They're spreading cloaks on the ground. They're 
cutting branches, they cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted Hosanna, which means save us. They want to be saved. Do they mean this in a deep theological meaning of, may I please get back into the right place with God? No, they want to be saved from oppression and from the Romans. This is one of the best things I ever learned from N.T. Wright, that the, the Messiah in the minds of the people at this time, the Messiah had a two-part job description. Part one was to kick out the pagan oppressors, dot, 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 the Romans, and two was to clean up the temple and kick out the crooked priests. Two-part job description which obviously puts Jesus in confrontation with two sets of people, Caesar's people and the priest's people. So they shout, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's from a psalm. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Why do they say that? Because if Jesus is truly Messiah, then he is ushering in the kingdom of God. Boom, boom, boom. One leads to the next. One plus one equals two. Messiah ushers in the kingdom of God. That's, you know, that's what's happening. And it, the result of it is the kicking out of the pagan oppressors and the cleaning up of the temple. Yep. The world's put right. All of that. It's a big package of stuff that's really entailed in it. So, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Wow. So you have these proclamations that the people make about who Jesus is, the shouting, the praising, the blessing. Look what God is doing. It's happening. The days arrived. And you know, whenever I read this, you just can't escape the knowledge that five days later, this is a Sunday, five days later on the Friday, he will be crucified. And the crowds will have turned on him. And the disciples will be hiding. And do I think Jesus knew how this was going to go? I do. Do I think it took deep, supernatural, godly powers to discern where this was going? I don't. I don't. He knew the Romans. He knew the priests. Do people like that give up power easily? Nope. At all? For any reason? What do they do? They fight. They fight. Look what's happening in Ukraine and Russia right now. Right, the slightest little diminution of, of Putin and his power and all that stuff brings on what? War. So, but it's all, it's all exciting on this Sunday, right? So verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem. He went into the temple courts and he looked around at everything. But since it was already late, He's being strategic here. Since it was already late, 
he went back to Bethany with the twelve. Because um, this is happening at Passover. And Passover's the time, it's, it's when the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding area is just packed, 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 packed. And <coughs> many people, <coughs> most people have to stay outside the city um, with friends and that's what Jesus does. The, the disciples and Jesus, you know, they're gonna stay in Bethany presumably with Mary, Martha, Lazarus. Okay. Where are the Hesses? It looks like Edwards, Colorado. And it's 75 degrees there. Isn't that nice? I didn't need to know that. <laughs> no, man, that's great. No, Enjoy it. I was in Norway. Yes. Norway last week, so there you go. So, for Mark, Jesus comes in. Well, really for all of them. Jesus comes in on the Sunday. He rides in this triumphal entry makes his unmistakable claim to be Messiah and returns to Bethany for Sunday night. That's that's how it works. You know, I've, I've taught several times uh, <coughs> a Sunday morning class where we go through each day, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, just to kind of get a sense of sort of how they're laid out. So I'll, I'll try to I'll try to maintain that sense. Um, as we go through these these chapters here. So it, he goes back out to Bethany on Sunday night. Any questions, Patty? No questions, hon. No, we're good. This was always strange to me. This curses the fig tree. I know. It's very... And it's strangest in Mark. It's very strange. Yes. So let's tackle it, shall we? Okay, yes. Verse 12. So now it's Monday morning. The next day, Monday, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, which means, because this Passover is in the early spring, right? So the fig tree has leafed out, and he went to find out if it had any fruit. Because he figured he could eat a fig or two for breakfast. I'm trying not to make my Fig Newton joke. Yes. Thank you. Please don't. You're but welcome. That would certainly give him a lot of sugar. Yes. You know, a little energy. When Jesus reached it, reached the tree, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Josie Teeter said, Beth Page, House of Unripe Figs. <laughs> there we go. Very good, Josie. Is that real? How about Bethany? <laughs> Bethany means House of Figs. Beth Page, House of Unripe Figs. Wow. Well, there we go. I didn't know that. That's I fascinating. Didn't either. That really is. I never took the time to look that stuff up, Josie. That is fascinating because it takes us back to the fig stuff. This is Patty's question. We got figs and unripe figs and figs everywhere. Okay. So. All right. So Jesus goes to the tree. Only leaves, no figs. It's too early in the season. Figs don't really, the fruit doesn't start coming out until June. That's basically what Mark is telling us. Then Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. 
and his disciples heard him say it. So this is obviously, they're pretty shocked too, right? So this is written in such a way that they remembered this moment really well as, you know, as the years go on. Yeah, he went over that tree and he, and, and he cursed that fig tree and it shouldn't have had figs anyway. What's interesting is in Matthew's gospel, the business about it not being the season for figs, that's, that's not there, which makes it, you know, he's makes it kind of lazy to think, well, it should have had figs and didn't, so it's unfruitful. So, and Mark, though, it's just perplexing. So let me help as best I can. Fig trees, the fig tree was a symbol of the temple. It was and a symbol why of the is that? Because it was an important produce in in Israel and why was it a symbol of the it temple? Just sound, it just sounds weird to me that that would have been a symbol of the temple. But I know I, I've heard it many times before, but I just wonder where that came from. Why is the dove a symbol of peace? I don't know. You know, we end up with certain cultural symbols that mean certain things. But anyway, fig tree would be associated with the temple and... Maybe he's probably so. Jesus is probably re reaching back to the prophet Micah in this. So let's go to Micah chapter seven and see if that's a help to us. Oi, okay, come on. Micah, gotta remember to work this iPad. Micah chapter 7? Micah chapter 7, verse 1. So Micah is the prophet, right? And he's working almost 700 years before Jesus. So we'll just look at Micah. Okay. One more second. Micah chapter 7. Verse 1. Okay, Micah chapter 7, verse 1. What misery is mine! I'm like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There's no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land, and not one upright person remains. So, there, the lack of early figs and unfaithfulness are linked together. And that is probably what's going on in Mark chapter 11. Hmm. Okay. Yep. Is, is the temple being faithful? If the fig tree is a symbol of the temple, is, are, are the chief priests being faithful? No. They are not. They're a corrupt dynasty that exists for making their money and they are not leading the people toward God. They're leading the people away from God. Um. 
that really goes on about the, you know. Yeah. Main, so this cursing of the fig tree for almost all commentators is just a cursing. It's a it's a place where Jesus remarks upon the, you know, the unfaithfulness of the temple and just the, just the faithless people in general. And I think there's probably, it's probably true that Jesus has in mind Micah 7. Where the fig tree and unfaithfulness are so closely brought together. It is interesting, isn't it, Lynn? Yep. And so then we have Bethany and Bethphage. You know, but there's a couple of Bethphages. But now I, since Josie found this, I understand better why we even are told about Bethphage. So we're told that Bethphage is, is, is included in this because it means house of unripe fruits, figs. This whole fig thing is about... It's a metaphor for the unfaithfulness and the corruption in the temple and the priests and really the people writ large. And that's going to be demonstrated here. So look at verse 15. So Jesus has now had his encounter with the fig tree. Verse 15 back at uh, Mark 11. Mark chapter 11, verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem... Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. These are the temple courts are huge. Just, you have the temple proper in the center. The temple court is courts are enormous. You could fit like 22, 23 football fields into the expanse that encompasses the whole temple mount. And the temple itself takes up a relatively small amount of that space. And so set up around it and in some of the inner courts are people who are buying and selling animals and stuff because if you needed to come down and make a sacrifice or whatever, you didn't necessarily want to travel with all the animals that you might want to offer and sacrifice. So you would go down to the temple and you would buy the animals, you know, that you would offer and sacrifice. And so there's this whole buying and selling of sacrificial doves and the rest of it there. And Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Den of Thieves, a famous moment, right? The turning over of the tables. Jesus pronounces judgment on the temple right there in that place. But I want to show you the place that Jesus is referring to when he says, is it not written? Because these words that Jesus utters are not original with him. So let's take another little trip. I have time to do this today. Go to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 7. Very good, Patty. Jeremiah, yes. Jeremiah. Is Jeremiah in the Old Testament? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 1. <laughs> We're so fun. Okay, so Jeremiah is this big-time prophet, right? He's working... 
He's working for God. It's about <coughs> 40 years or so before the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple and the loss of the Ark of the Covenant at the hands of the Babylonians. Jeremiah 7, verse 1. Very, this is a passage you need to know about. Right? And link to what Jesus does in all in the Gospels when he overturns the tables. So chapter 7, verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. Stand at the gate of Yahweh's house, that is the temple, and there proclaim this message. And we're going to hear the whole message. Hear the word of Yahweh, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship Yahweh. This is what Yahweh Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Meaning the temple. Jerusalem, even. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. Right? Because what are the people doing there? Doing any darn thing they want. Then they come wrap themselves in words that just sound good. Good religious words. and they're, Right? Now, verse 5. God says through Jeremiah, If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. They live in Israel. They live in Jerusalem because it's a gift from God to them. But they've been abusing that gift. They've forgotten it was a gift. Then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave you, your ancestors, forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are useless. Worthless. Worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, Follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me, your God, in this house, which bears my name, and say, Oh, we're safe. We're safe. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. All very pious and, you know, yes, yes. Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. And then God, then God goes on to paint the picture for them of what awaits them if they don't begin living like the people of God. Always remember that when when the Israelites go to Mount Sinai, they willingly enter into this covenant with God. Three times they're asked, do you really want to do this? Are you ready to do this? Do you want to enter this covenant? 
each time they say yes, yes, yes. And what what we just read here um, about stealing and murder and adultery and perjury, you, I mean, you get that that's all about that covenant, right? Yeah, but they're not living up to that covenant. And what is going to be the consequence of that? The Babylonians are going to overrun Jerusalem. They're going to destroy the temple. They're going to make off with the Ark of the Covenant and tens of thousands of Jews are going to go into exile in Babylon. 40 years or so after Jeremiah brings God brings this message from God. And in Mark's Gospel, now in about 30 AD, Jesus has come in to the temple, gone into the temple courts, and invoked the words and actions of Jeremiah. That's where those words come from. That's where those actions come from. That's invoking the words of Jeremiah, pronouncing judgment on the temple. And of course, he does it in his own name. Jeremiah doesn't, in, doesn't do that in his own name. He does it in the name of Yahweh, but Jesus does it in his own name. Of course he does. He is God. And 40 years later, 40 years after Jesus, after this, Jesus turns the tables over, he, the temple in Jerusalem will be destroyed. The city will be destroyed. The temple has never been rebuilt. On the spot where the temple stood is now the Dome of the Rock, a holy Muslim site. So Jeremiah's pronounced, you know, Jeremiah was vindicated. Jeremiah was shown to have brought the true word from God because the Babylonians overran the temple. And Jesus is vindicated because the Romans overrun the temple. All these pieces, they're all linked together and they're important to grasp the, the larger picture of what God has done and is doing. It's, 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 that's what, this is why Christianity is not a philosophical religion. It's not a religion of ideas. Other religions are. Hinduism is basically a religion of ideas. There isn't even really any holy book, per se, in Hinduism. But the Bible is the story of what God has done, is doing, and shall do in this world, in real time, in real space, with real people doing real things to put right what, you, what humanity threw away by rebelling against God. So, there we go. And so, with that turning over of the tables there at the temple with Jesus, that's where we're going to end today. And we'll come back to, we'll come back pick it up there next week. Anything, Patty? No, that was it, honey. Wow. Yeah. There's a lot of drama in yes. this. And it's, you know, you, I grew up in the church, you know, you'd hear the little sermons and that'd all be nice. It'd be little inspirational moments and some jokes and little personal stories. But the drama of what God is doing and has done was kind of lost. Because things were never tied together. They weren't just never. One of the books on my shelf is a book called The Drama of Scripture. It's just this overview telling this story. 
to help people grasp the fullness of God's work in this world. Well, I made it, baby. I think I sucked down like four lozenges. I think you did too. Well, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, uh, I, I kind of was noticing that, that, that sometimes there'd be little pauses in what you were saying. Yes. I was trying so to get a lozenge to the right place. <laughs> anyway, we are so glad that uh, so many of you were here with us today. Um, actually had as many people attend today as the very first Gospel of Mark. So that was like, wow. yeah, so that was a really wow, that, a good that, thing. I mean, yeah. considering we're first time we're back after being gone for three weeks. Yes. Three, we, we missed three, three classes. Surprising that okay people remembered but we're so glad you did <laughs> and of course there'll be class in person tomorrow on samuel and uh, we're starting, starting second samuel starting second samuel tomorrow 12 o'clock the king Hall. is dead long live the king wow Saul is dead jonathan's dead that's so sad jonathan's dead that's sad yeah. so well but we're gonna just plunge on we that. will so Thank you for joining us today, and um, we hope you have a good rest of the day today. Stay inside, hopefully, if you can, and uh, let's just close in prayer. Okay. All righty. Thank you, Patty. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time that we get to come together and study your word, and um, each of us, Lord, you know, are just so grateful that we, we live in a place, we live in this country, God, where we can do that so freely, never having to worry about any negative consequences. We are just really, truly grateful, Lord. We pray, God, that you would watch over each of us and our families, Lord, and our friends, God, as we move forward from today. It is so hot, Lord, right now in so many parts of our country, and certainly right here in Texas. And I truly pray, God, for those that are not blessed enough to be inside or with air conditioning, God, that you would just help these people somehow, Lord, some way, um, you know, make it through this ridiculous heat, Lord, that we're going through right now. Um, can't even really imagine. We are uh, truly, truly blessed. It's one of those things we've come to just take, take in, um, you know, for granted, Lord. Please keep us together, Lord, as a group. We pray, God, that we'll all be back together next Monday. We pray, God, for your blessing on us for good health. Lord, please keep us safe. And Lord, please help us. Bless us with your uh, wisdom and discernment to help us make good decisions, God, every day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Adios, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. See some of you tomorrow. Bye.